Week two in our series, Wounds, uh, Healing from Our Past. Let's move along. Last week, uh, we not only gave you another, or rather specific instructions and strategies for dealing with monsters that live under your bread, bed, um, or, or maybe still roaming willy-nilly about your house, um, but we also came to some biblical truths, right? Those others weren't really biblical, I don't think. Um, if monsters are in the house and are, and are a part of God's good creation, um, some things that happen in the world are senseless, right? This is something, right? Things happen to us, and I know we want to, okay, what's the lesson? What's the, what, what does God want to show me? What did I do wrong? I mean, we go to all those places, and the fact of the matter is, yeah, that might be the situation. Again, if you're killing people and burying them in your backyard, that's a situation. Um, but for, uh, for the others of us, it's just the way the world is. It's filled with, with monsters, um, and here's what that means to us, you and I. Uh, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're failing or that you've done something to displease your Heavenly Father. Maybe you did again, but more than likely it's just the world. Um, and you're, you're special, <laughs> but um, in, in this world that doesn't come out real strongly. You're one of six and seven billion people all struggling to get what they want. And, and sometimes we get in each other's way. Yeah, so. And this morning, easily one of the most universal wounds is that of being abandoned or even just feeling abandoned. Um, in fourth grade, my family went to Disneyland. I'd, I'd been there before. Um, one of my plans was to um, go through the Pirates of the Caribbean and reach out across the water and snag some of those gold coins. Very disappointing. They're not real. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm, we're, we're there, family, and there's a cartoonist, you know, that, that, that draw the pictures of you, and they're all kind of goofy, and, and, and I, I, was, I became fascinated, and I just started watching, and I don't know how much time went by, but suddenly I thought, okay, I'm bored, and I looked around, and my family was gone. They were gone. And I don't know how, if you can imagine this, being in fourth grade, being at Disneyland, and your parents disappear. And there are many other situations, malls, parking lots. I mean, right? I was terrified. I, my whole world sh shattered, right? My, the thoughts that went through my head is like, they're going to find me several weeks from now dead in the bushes behind this cartoonist guy, right? Because there, there's no way. There's, there's, there's like 10 zillion people at Disneyland. It was so packed. There was, and I began to run, Right? I, I mean, I'm sobbing, right? snotty sobbing. And, I, and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and I don't see mom and dad, brothers, sisters, and there's a big group of us. I see nobody. And every thought in the world, I mean, you've been there, right? Every thought in the world that could go wrong, that this could eventually land at, it, I mean, it, it went through my mind, right? They'll never find me, right? It was, just, it, was, it was horrible, horrible. And then I began to feel physically sick. Right? I felt like I was going to throw up and vomit. It was just, it was horrible. Just this, this, I, I, the hormones, I think, just raging, fight or flight, right? What, how, how am I going to handle this, this situation? And for the first time in my life, and I, I kind of look back on this, it, probably for the first time in my life, my faith in my parents was seriously shaken, right? They should have taken care of me, and they just left me. Afterwards, I was angry. I, I was really upset, more than anything, because so I wandered and wandered and wandered, and finally I walked up to a security guard just sobbing, hey, can you help me find my parents? Well, there's a 
there's a child lost and found. I didn't know this, and apparently my parents did. I was in there not more than five or ten minutes. They walked in. Hey, let's go. And I'm like, no, we need to talk. And I was just, and my mom said, we thought you were with you. Ha, <laughs> just, I was steaming. I was steaming. But I got over it. But I never forgot, obviously. <laughs> Turns out what I experienced was fairly universal. In terms of being truly abandoned, I know I wasn't truly abandoned. felt like it, but I wasn't truly, truly abandoned. Um, but I know lots of folks who have been abandoned. I think you might also. Same symptoms, just radically different intensity and potential damage. If you were truly, if you've experienced real abandonment or you know somebody. So very quickly, without a whole lot of explanation, what one professional calls swirl, right? The five universal stages of abandonment. And I share with you, because if you are struggling with feelings of abandonment, if you have faced such horrible situations in your life that you are, you play with the idea, that does God even care? Does he remember me? Do I even have faith in God anymore? Because he doesn't seem to hear me. We, we heard from the psalmist last week, Psalm 13, Psalm 40. How long, Lord, before we sing a new song? How long? And describe feeling like death, right? So again, I share these, 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 these five stages because there are many of us that have experienced this in our past and, and haven't gotten past that past wound. And maybe you're experiencing or feeling or believing even now that God doesn't care that God's abandoned you. Or maybe you're going to one day experience this and maybe you'll remember this message. Because what God says to be the actual truth is radically different than what you're feeling. Each one of these stages relate to different aspects of human functioning. They trigger different emotional responses. Um, the first letter of each word spells swirl, right? A great word picture of how your life feels when you're abandoned, right? Right down. <laughs> and important to note, these stages aren't necessarily linear, right? You can move through several stages at once or even cycle through them several times. First stage is shattering, right? Again, they'll eventually find my body in the bushes next to the cartoonist. Or I'll always be alone, right? Well, I'll never find love. I'll never have a job that I like. Why even try? Feeling the impact of the loss and hurt, you experience a stab-like wound to your heart, literally feeling like your whole world is shattered. Left in shock, you're bewildered by the discontent, the pain, and the hurt, and feeling helpless and confused and totally alone in the world. And in this space, waves of depression Despair, sorrow, unsure of what the next moment will bring, even with glimpse, briefs, brief glimpses of hope. When we feel our emotional supports are being threatened or robbed from us, we get fearful and we start thinking kind of crazy thoughts. And then there's withdrawal, craving that person, that relationship, that role, or that object that's now gone constant anxiety about the loss, wanting to hold on to the rem remnants of what's left, feeling overwhelmingly vulnerable. Because the lover of the hope that came with that person who's now gone, the lover of the hope is now gone also. 
your physical body, you feel like you have the flu, right? You're flooded with those hormones. Overwhelming nervousness, anxiety, jumpiness, nausea. I believe it. Boy, oh boy, I believe it. Your lens becomes about surviving the day and about breathing through the pain of each moment. Maybe this is ringing true with some of us. Maybe some of you have not experienced this, but maybe you will one day. And then there's internalizing. This is where you internalize the rejection, making it personal, right? Proof that you're unimportant and not good enough or, or even lovable. Anger is then turned inward, right? And you blame yourself for losing someone you love, for feeling unlovable, for you question your own worth. And then the rage sets in. Intense anger about the injustice of the situation you're in. Right? Feeling agitated, restless, low distress tolerance. Right? Somebody starts drumming their finger and you want to chop the fingers off. You're stressed. Moodiness, anger, outbursts, or even fantasies of revenge. <laughs> I watch TV sometime and I think, oh, Lord. Get a grip on my mind. This is when where all that bottled up frustration and anger and hurt, they explode out into the open and they do serious damage right at this stage. And again, this stage might not be fourth. It might be right out of the gate. And then with enough time, maybe if all goes well, you have what, what this psychologist calls lifting. You begin to feel intervals of relief from the pain and the grief and you begin to get distracted by life again. The weight of the experience begins to feel a little bit less heavy, and you feel as though you're finding your way through to maybe the next stage in life where once you believed that was literally impossible. And in our Bible, we have lots of accounts of those who made it to this final stage, and it ultimately kept the faith. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, take a little peek at that. Just an incredibly long list of people who <sighs> wouldn't have blamed them if they lost faith. Not at all, but they didn't. They kept the faith. But what happens when you lose the faith? Right? What happens when the pain is so great and your thinking has become so muddled and clouded that you lose faith in God? Well, in a strange and kind of a twisted way, I hope you're okay with this, the Bible account of Earth's first murderer is going to help you. Not that I'm equating you with the murderer, right? Just keep that in mind. But what Cain experiences as Earth's first murderer, I think, will be incredibly instructive if you're experiencing feelings of abandonment, because that's exactly what Cain went through, and Cain lost faith in God. And then we see the swirl of his life. So I'm going to show you some signposts, some signs that you need to, whoa, 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 I'm entering the swirl. Whew, need to stop, need to pause, take account. turns out that chapter 4, the story of the first murderer, will help us find our way to that last stage of lifting. Rather than finding ourselves with Cain living east of Eden in the land of Nod, we're going to get to that. Chapter 3 of Genesis, known as the fall, it's a horrible chapter, ends on a rather ominous note. This is Genesis 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 22. It says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. forever. In other words, eternally cursed and suffering. Continuing in verse 23, 24. So the Lord God banished him 
from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden, and if you remember in chapter 1, chapter 2, the entrance to the garden is on the east side. Right? Kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And he also placed on the east side, that is the entrance and the exit, to the garden, cherubim. That's I am on the end of a Hebrew word. David, help me out here. That's plural. Is that correct? Lots of cherubs. Thank you very much. He placed cherub and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Seems like a punishment, but it's also a rescue by an incredibly patient, long-suffering, gracious Father in heaven to eternally lose such important parts of his creation, us, was simply not something God was willing to risk. So he sticks that cherubim there, and they got this big old sword. Ain't nobody getting near that tree of life because he doesn't want any of us eternally hurt. God's perfect judgment is always coupled with his perfect grace. It's a beautiful picture right there of that. So God wasn't done with the prodigal humans, right? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Adam made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And I don't know if you recognize this, but Adam's assigned tasks are now being carried out by his sons. Right? Cain serves the soil, bringing forth its abundance and its fruit. And Cain serves the non-human inhabitants of creation, helping them be fruitful and multiply. So Adam has at least taught his boys that. Continuing in verse 3 and 4. Well, verse 3, in the course of time. I think here we, we just kind of need to pause, kind of consider the situation more carefully. If you can imagine for a moment, mom and pop got ejected from paradise. For a seemingly small infraction, one might even conclude, you know, as a child hearing this from mom and dad, right, I'm sure Adam and Eve shared the story with Cain and Abel, one might conclude that God had given up on them. Based on the punishment, you could see a child concluding that God had abandoned mom and dad, which seems to have been the case with one brother but not the other. Listen to this, 3 and 4, it says this, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Cain also brought an offer, offering fat portions. That, that's the good stuff, right? Modern times, not so much. Cut it, toss it. Back then, nope, best part. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, the firstborn. The firstborn, by the way, are your guarantee for moreborn, right? You sacrifice your firstborn, you are running the risk of being in deep, deep trouble of not having a flock later on. So to do so is an incredible statement of faith. It's an action of faith. I entrust my entire flock, and I will give you the best and the first because I trust you, Father. And in the course of time, Cain brought some fruit, but Abel brought fat portions, the firstborn. And the Lord looked on favor with favor on Abel and on his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Lots of ideas, lots of rumors, lots of stories, opinions about why God accepted one and not the other. One of the most popular is that Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. But that instruction wasn't given until Moses, and even when it was eventually given, there was always a, an, an out if you were poor. You didn't have to bring an animal because you couldn't afford it. You could, you could bring a grain offering. There were allowances. 
Many now agree it wasn't what each brought to worship. It was the attitude of each brother's approach to worship. Wow, that's a whole, that's a whole series all by itself. How do we approach worship? Casually or intensely? Abel's choice. Abel's was the choicest parts in the firstborn. Abel's implied intentionality and care and faith and awe in God's goodness. But Cain's was simply some fruits of the soil, a rather casual approach to worship from one who might not feel that God is worth worshiping anymore. Right? You, you can understand Cain's point of view. Cain had lost faith in God's goodness. Hebrews 11, verse 4 of the New Testament verifies this. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith. By faith, he was commended commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. So Abel had kept the faith. Cain had lost the faith. and, And now the ugly downward swirl when one loses faith in God. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast, right? Remember we talked about this, cold shoulder. This is, Cain's given God cold face. Right? That's a pretty gutsy thing to do. Rest of verse 6, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. In other words, even though you are obviously, you've obviously lost faith in me, I haven't lost faith in you. See, God's questions, they weren't a rebuke. Right? They were an attempt at reconciliation with a very, very angry Cain. And the choice was Cain's. If he chose to reject God's good counsel, sin would bring him down. God was telling Cain he had the power and the resources, including a renewed relationship with his heavenly father, to master the sin crouching at his door. Now, I want you to catch that. To master the sin crouching. That's a holiness message right there if you didn't catch that. right? We can be made holy. We can master sin. We don't have to sin every moment in word, thought, and deed. I'll get past that. Let me get off that soapbox. But Cain chose poorly. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And I don't know. We don't know what happened. The narrator doesn't inform us of this. Maybe he planned it. Maybe he just wanted to talk. Well, what did you bring? Right? How did God? Right? And then it, maybe it just got out of hand. See, Cain wasn't really angry at Abel. He was angry at God. But you've heard of displaced anger, right? I think Cain took it out on his brother. I've done that. Oh, I stopped laughing. Okay. Cain kills because he no longer believes that God cares to be involved, right? God has abandoned them to their own devices. They take care of stuff. They've been abandoned. And I know this is a very controversial movie. The movie, no, I decided to watch it, even with its incredibly odd interpretations. Taken from the apocryphal book of Enoch, right? These, the watchers, these stone creatures. We don't read about it in our Bible because we don't have the, the books written between the Testaments. But Enoch was one of those books. And Anyway, one of Cain's descendants, Tubal-Cain, says something rather insightful that gives us a glimpse into Cain's mindset, right? And again, Tubal-Cain's attitude was most likely handed down by Cain. 
hand it down, hand it down, hand it down, right? The sins visit generations, right? God has abandoned us, and I'll be blank if I don't take what I want, including revenge. And I think related to this idea of revenge, in my dealings at least with folks who have been abandoned, not only is there an intense fear of being abandoned again, or at least an uncontrollable fear of having to start from scratch, right, and fend for themselves again, but a result of that seems to be a distortion of what is right and fair and just. And some end up at, I'll just take what I want because nobody else is going to take care of me. It's just simply a matter of survival. And at that point, there's no right and wrong. I'm fully justified. Continuing in verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And in a twisted kind of sense, Cain had become his brother's keeper. All right, we're going to hear in the next verse. He asked him, hi, my brother's keeper. See, there are beneficial ways of being our brother's keeper, you know, assisting, coming to their aid whenever and wherever possible. But there's a destructive way of keeping our brother, and that's the way of Cain. We're keeping our brothers really using our brother for our own ends. And in this, in this case, it was revenge against God, I think. Once again, God's questions aren't a rebuke, right? They're another attempt at reconciliation. Admit and repent and all will be good again, right? Even for murder. I still want to have a relationship with you. I have not abandoned you despite how you feel. That's a message we all need to hear. If you are feeling abandonment, God has not abandoned you. You feel like it, but it is simply not true. That's not a biblical truth. It's not true. But Cain's defiant. I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? Right, he's clearly lying and he refuses to even acknowledge that something's amiss. Brother, what brother? Do I have a brother? What are you talking about, God? Right, he's just sad, right, sad. The implication of Cain's rather rude retort, you clearly couldn't take care of and protect my parents and now you expect me to take care of and protect my brother? Is that the way this world of yours works? You do nothing and we got to do everything? So Cain denies any knowledge of his brother's whereabouts, but God knows exactly what happened to Cain, to Abel. So Cain had moved straight to the fourth stage of rage. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops or its strength or its fruit to you. See, Cain is now cursed and banned, so to speak, from his livelihood. Right? Personified, as it is in Israel's creation theology, right? the earth has certain, not personhood, but selfhood. Right? It's a live thing. It's not just immaterial. Again, in Israel's creation theology, the earth is alive. The earth sings. The hills cry out. The oceans roar. Right? We are invited to imagine creation with selfhood. In fact, in the Genesis account, you see in the first three days, God calls to the elements to do something, and they respond. And then this last three days, those elements are instructed, take care of. 
right? Increase, multiply, and the ground and the waters respond like as if they were alive. The earth has certain selfhood, and in this passage, the ground is sorrowed, right, at having to receive Abel's innocent blood and is now relieved not to have to yield its crops or its strength to the murderer. And then a final word of judgment, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Wanderers to quiver, to waver, to tremble, to totter, kind of the picture of a vagabond, a drunken vagabond, kind of describes the seemingly aimlessness of one's journey. This is different from the nomads who traveled, right, with purpose, and they followed the rhythms of the season. That's not what Cain was doing at this point. He was literally wandering aimlessly, kind of a drunken wobble side to side. In other words, there is no rest or peace for humans unless we discover the freedom that's found in God. When we're separated from God, our world is one of constantly searching anxiety. And then somewhat out of order, Cain's world shatters, right? He experienced that fourth stage of rage, and then he goes to his earth shattering. Cain said, Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are, dri- you are driving me. This has nothing to do with you are abandoning me. I know my sin was horrible, but you're abandoning me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Right? He's, he, he, he's in that moment of, of, of panic, of, of shattering and, and, and all these questions, every conceivable bad thing that could happen to him floods to his head. Right? They'll eventually find me in the bushes next to the cartoon artist. In Cain's mind, God's abandonment is now complete, and every fear he's ever attained, entertained now comes to life. No point in hanging around waiting for a crop, right? Because no crop is going to be forthcoming. And then his mind starts racing. I'm a dead man walking, right? According to the narrative, there's lots of able, able sons who know who killed dad. They're all running around. They know who Cain is. Cain killed our dad. And so for Cain... For a little while, anyways, he's a man on the run. The murderer is afraid of murderers. But again, God is, and forever, a gracious God. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. We don't know what the mark is. Lots of ideas there, too. But the point being seven, seven times over, represents perfect and complete. God is declaring that only he, only he can provide justice that is perfect and complete for Cain. If left up to y'all, it'll be ugly. It, it will not be, it, it just, it, it won't work. Left up to humanity, we fall into the law of retaliation, right? With each killing leading to more retaliatory killings and each round becoming more and more intense. And so Cain withdraws from the scene, completing the second stage of abandonment. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now the presence of the Lord seems to have been at the entrance of the garden, looked at a whole bunch of commentaries, never thought about this before, where the cherubim are, are stationed. According to theologians, the children of Adam and Eve kind of lingered in faith and hope before the Lord, kind of near, near the entrance, kind of near where God was. 
right? If you start moving too far away, the garden, right? That was God's home. That was his temple. And so they, they hung out, I think, waiting and hoping maybe he'll change his mind. Let's not get too far away, right? Maybe he'll change his mind and we don't want to be gone. They acknowledge his undeserved goodness with sacrifices. But Cain withdrew from the scene of parental affection, home associations, and divine presence. Additionally, Cain had internalized the issue, right? It was now personal. He was being driven out by God, right? That was his proof that he was a lousy person. He knew it. So Cain went and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Land of Nod is simply, it's not a place. You're not going to find it on any maps, ancient maps. It's, it's, it means the land of wandering. He moved eastward with his back to the entrance. He began to move eastward, east of Eden. As the distance from their happy home increases, so too does the wickedness of humanity. Again, once outside the garden, Adam's family must now live by faith, but Cain, feeling like God has abandoned them, and him in particular, which only heightens his sense of abandonment, he's lost faith in God. And Cain, and Cain now seems to arrive at that final stage of lifting. He, he moves on with his life, minus God. I want you to notice that. It sounds like he does move on, but minus God, and the destruction grows. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. See, losing in faith in God and trying to find security outside of God, Cain and his descendants begin making a name for themselves rather than exalting God's name. And then seven generations after Adam, right? Remember, seven, complete, total, perfect. Seven generations after Adam, complete and perfect lawlessness. Lawlessness. Things get out of hand with the law of retaliation. Verse 19 says, Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other named Zillah. First recorded case of polygamy in the Bible. Strangely, the Bible never out and out condemns Lamech or Abraham or David or any of the other polygamous people of Israel. But if you read well, and that's the power of a narrative, if you read well, you quickly discover in every single one of those situations, home life was a zoo. It was horrible. So if you're contemplating, don't. You never know. Um, and then in verse, and then in two verses each, in two verses each, first a life minus faith in God, and then a life remaining faithful to God. First minus God says this, Lamech said to his wife, Ara and Zella, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, right? This is the law of retaliation, right? This is the way of Cain. And at least one good reason for Israel's eventual legal concept of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, right? Without that protecting law, even able-bodied men, let alone weak men, would be at the mercy of men like Lamech. Disproportionate redress is the phrase. And I get it. I get it. Sometimes I, I want to destroy people for the slightest offense, right? If they cut me off, the things that I think about that I, it, are just horrible. Not an eye for an eye <laughs> at all, let alone grace. 
Whew, a million miles away from that. We're celebrating the death, downfall, and eternal damnation of those who don't align with our faith, beliefs, and opinions. That's what the Jews did, right? They would pray, Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that you are planning on destroying, because they're horrible people. Hallelujah, praise God. When I was little, this was my opinion with my little brother. It was to retaliate in such an overwhelming fashion that Robbie wouldn't even think about upsetting me again, even if he could. After I was done with him and then Dad changed all that, he noticed what was going on. And we had boxing gloves and I would just pommel Robbie. Just, it was horrible. And so one day he just came out and says, hey, let's go a few rounds. And he popped me once in the nose and he said, that's the way Robbie feels, stop it. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm just spinning. You know, he about knocked me out. That wasn't child abuse. That was a very, very poetic justice, I think. <laughs> and then two verses. Again, two verses. A life still faithful to God. Verses 25 and 26. And Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And really the best way to read that last phrase is be they, a, a fresh start, a, a new start worshiping the Lord. And then in the next chapter of Genesis, Seth's line is detailed. We're not going to get into that in detail. But again, a description of the seventh descendant from Adam. Perfect and complete faithfulness to God. Listen to this. Seventh generation from Adam. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. He didn't have to go through death. And so in chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis, with the story of Cain and Seth, and Abel, we have a clear and compelling portrait of what it looks like and what it feels like when we repent and we continue to walk with God no matter what the world throws at us. Seth kept the faith. He remained in the family of God. He remained safe, secure. He remained resting, meaning in Hebrew literature that in the morning you could walk out your door and not fear getting attacked and you could come back and you could come and go without fear. Glorifying God's name, receiving in faith from God, justice with mercy. This is a beat-up person, a beat-up family, a member of a beat-up family who has retained faith in God. They haven't lost faith. But we also have a very clear and compelling picture of what can happen when extreme pain and sorrow or hurt brings you to the point of losing faith in God. Things quickly spiral out of control. They swirl out of control. Cain lost the faith. And he felt orphaned instead of a part of the family. Instead of living in God's presence, he lived in the land of wandering. Instead of glorifying God's name, he glorified his own name. Instead of faith in God, he had faith in himself only. Justice minus mercy, the law of retaliation. All good reasons why Jesus and Paul were both so adamant about the way we deal with our wounds and those who wound us. I'd like to close the passage that includes our scripture reading this morning, Romans 12, 9-21. And I want you to notice the attention that Paul gives to the way we deal with our hurts. This is in a section subtitled in NIV is Love in Action. And you think about love in action and you don't think about hurts and pain, lovely things. I'm going to bring you a cup of sugar in the morning. But listen to this, starting in verse 9, love must be sincere. And I've highlighted these jarring statements that Paul just... Right? There's something going on that love that we don't think about when we think about love. 
Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then it continues. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. And do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. It's, like, it's just so jarring. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Right, how we respond to people who hurt us matters right, because that's the only part that we can control. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay perfectly justice with mercy. You all tend to forget mercy. <laughs> Please leave this up to me. God's perfect and complete wrath. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this is not a picture of shaming your neighbor, killing them with kindness. That's just mean. The idea isn't that your actions will necessarily shame them as much as it will make them examine their own behavior, and then they will desire to repent. Falling to the law of retaliation, we literally kill our neighbors. This is what Jesus was talking about. If you're thinking about it, you're already you're heading down that road in a big, strong way. Because rather than repenting, they now seek to retaliate, and the cycle never ends. We have damned them to this law of retaliation because we didn't give them a chance to repent. We kill our neighbors. And we think that we're being fair and just and right. Just doing what you would have done, God. What you should have done, God. And the cycle never ends, and everyone suffers and dies. And just as God had told Cain, but Cain resisted, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is entirely within our grasp to overcome evil with good. So whether you're actually abandoned or just feel like you've been abandoned, God has never abandoned you and he never will. All right, it might feel that way, but chapter 4 of Genesis begs to differ. Regardless of how you feel, do not lose faith in God because he has not lost faith in you. Keep in mind, Scripture's promise that God will ultimately bring heaven and earth together to the glory of his good purposes. And that even now, he brings about good, and even in the midst of our bad, for those who love and trust him. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So whatever you're feeling, if you are feeling abandoned or any, any of that, that's the liar, that's the accuser filling your head muddling your thinking, filling you with fear that has no place in your life. I know it's a weird instruction, but go home and read the chapter 4. Read about Cain occasionally if you're feeling like you've been abandoned. And take a really close look at where that road is going to lead you if you lose faith in God because he has not lost faith in you. Bow your heads. Father God, thank you so much for a crazy chapter. But what an instructive chapter. Every step of the way, Father, you kept attempting at reconciliation. You never stop. Father, that gives us hope. If we're feeling like we're drowning right now, 
right? We just lift up a hand, God, and your hand is already reaching down because that's your grace that goes before. So, Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for your faithfulness. In your son's name I pray. Amen.